crazy that it's already Advent time. I feel like as I get older, the years just seem to fly by faster and faster. I don't know if, about you guys, but I think it's, it's easy for me to enter into a holiday season, especially um, one like Advent, where we're kind of expected to do something special for Advent. It's easy for me to kind of go into it and just treat it like normal, or even worse, just to kind of sigh my way through it as though it's something that we've been through a million times. I would heavily encourage both myself and all of you as we enter into this Advent season not to do that. I would encourage you to try to take this time to slow down, to eliminate or ignore the hurry and the busyness that this holiday season tries to enter into our lives, try to center our lives around Christ. Advent is the time when we celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ. And we also celebrate and look forward with hope towards his next coming. It's really easy to get caught up in the chaos and the busyness of the holiday season. Our culture really tries to push that. It's all about shopping. It's all about going and doing this or that. It's just a very busy time. And a lot of that is good and a lot of that is fine, but it's too easy to get caught up in that and allow the Advent season to pass by without taking time to focus on Jesus. So I would really encourage you to slow down, focus on Christ during this time, use this time to recenter your life on Jesus Christ. Throughout the history of God revealing himself to his people, he's built in these specific times and reminders as ways for his people to refocus their lives around him. Advent is one of those seasons for us. So let's do what we can to slow down, to focus our lives on Christ, and hopefully this morning to allow his truth and his gospel to enter into our hearts and change us. So before we get into the actual passage, I want to just set the stage for the gospel of Matthew a little bit. I'm not going to recap the Old Testament, but I think it's important for us to put the gospel of Matthew in some context and just kind of understand what a gospel is and how we're supposed to read it. So Matthew is one of the four gospels, which are biographies of Jesus Christ. They are a narrative tale of his life, his teachings, his death, and his resurrection. And each of the four gospels are presented a little bit differently based on the four different authors and what they are trying to communicate, because each of them are trying to communicate something a little bit different. For this book specifically, for the Gospel of Matthew, authorship, like most of the books of the Bible, is a little hard to pinpoint, but the early church believed that the author of Matthew's Gospel was, in fact, the disciple Matthew himself, and there really isn't much reason to disbelieve that. We know Matthew was a Jewish tax collector, which meant he was well-educated and also that he was extremely hated by his own people. He was a Jew who was working for the Roman oppressors to help oppress his own people. 
I think that that is intense, and you can see in Matthew's gospel the interplay of Christ's incredible redemption as he calls Matthew out of this life of oppression and into a life of discipleship. And I think that redemption is one of the themes that is highlighted in the gospel of Matthew. A couple of other things that Matthew communicates through his gospel specifically is he's heavily focused on proving the consistency of the Old Testament and Jesus. He's seeking to prove that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecies and promises that God made throughout the Old Testament. I think Matthew's central point is that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised Savior, who was promised long before and now was delivered by a God who has been working his plan of salvation from the beginning of time. Matthew leans heavily into showing how Jesus fulfills prophecies. One of the cool things about Matthew's gospel is he also shows at multiple times and through multiple different ways how God is inviting the Gentiles into his people. I think we'll even see that today. So let's jump into it. We're going to read Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. It says, An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab, Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Solomon fathered Rehoboam, Rehoboam fathered Abijah, Abijah fathered Asa, Asa fathered Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat fathered Joram, Joram fathered Uzziah, Uzziah fathered Jotham, Jotham fathered Ahaz, Ahaz fathered Hezekiah, Hezekiah fathered Manasseh, Manasseh fathered Amon, Amon fathered Josiah, and Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel, Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel fathered Abiad, Abiad fathered Eliakim, Eliakim fathered Azor, Azor fathered Zadok, Zadok fathered Achim, Achim fathered Eliad, Eliad fathered Eleazar, Eleazar fathered Matan, Matan fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the exile to Babylon until the Christ, 14 generations. That is the word of the Lord for us. Let me pray. Jesus, I pray that this morning you would use your genealogy to speak directly into our hearts, to communicate your love and your care and your intentionality throughout history. Jesus, I pray that we would see in these names and these stories the amazing hope and grace and mercy that you provide for us. Jesus, open our hearts to your love. Thank you. Amen. All right. 
So that is a fun list of names. If you ever find yourself caught in a situation where you have to read a list of names from Scripture and you have no idea how to pronounce them, here's the, here's the tip. Just sound confident because nobody else knows how to pronounce them either. <laughs> Anyways, so today we get to talk about Jesus' genealogy. I love getting to read this just after finishing the book of Ruth, because at the end of Ruth, we get this cool picture of how Ruth and Boaz played into the genealogy of King David. And here we get to see that broadened out. We get to see the entire line from Abraham all the way to Jesus. And I think we get to see this larger picture of why the book of Ruth is important and why each one of these stories that are in the Old Testament is important as they all play into the coming of Jesus Christ. There's a couple of things that I want to get out of the way right off the bat. This is a genealogy of Jesus through his earthly father, Joseph. So what this immediately tells us is that Matthew is not trying to make some kind of a case for Jesus to be able to trace his blood lineage back to King David, although he probably can through his mother, Mary. What I think Matthew is instead trying to do is a little bit different, and we'll get to that in a minute. He doesn't need to care about Jesus's blood lineage because we know that Jesus is the literal son of God. You don't get a better pedigree than that. I think the second thing that I want to just get out of the way is that Matthew isn't trying to list every person in Jesus' genealogy. He isn't giving this complete history of his people. Instead, I think he's focused on several important symbolic elements that would, be, that would have been important to the Jews. He structures it in these three different groups of 14. Now, if you've been counting names instead of paying attention, you probably would have noticed that there actually aren't a full 42 names. Matthew double counts King David. And I think part of the reason he does that is because King David is so important to every single one of these promises and prophecies that are being given through this genealogy that we're going to look at. I don't think Matthew is trying to give us this perfect lineage from Abraham to Jesus. These time periods are different. These time periods are, some are much longer than others. Some of them weren't 14 generations. But Matthew is using these numbers and these names and these symbolic elements to show the importance of Jesus to show that he is the Messiah, that he is the one who has been prophesied and promised. So we're going to focus on two things that I think Matthew is trying to communicate with this genealogy. The first thing is that this is a kingly line of people and promises that have been made from Abraham all the way to Jesus, and that each one of these promises is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The second thing I think we can pull out of this is that this genealogy is a record of hope and the redemptive grace of God throughout human history in story after story after story that's recorded here as God uses these normal people, these sinners, to prove his love and intentionally continue his story. 
So there's a lot for us to cover. So let's get into it. So like I said, the first thing is that this genealogy is a kingly line of promises. Matthew isn't trying to lay out a direct blood lineage for Jesus, but he is establishing a kingly line all the way from the first patriarch, Abraham, down through King David and ultimately landing on Jesus. I'm sure if you've spent much time at all in church, you recognize at least some of these names in the genealogy. We don't have time to walk through every name on the list. That would take forever. But we are going to focus on the three groups that Matthew does. Specifically, we're going to focus on Abraham, David, and this exile period. Because all of them received promises from God that are fulfilled directly in Jesus Christ. We'll start with Abraham. I'm sure you're at least a little bit familiar with Abraham's story. As a young man, Abraham was called out of the land of his fathers to follow God into a new land that God promised would be given to him and his descendants. God promises to make Abraham's descendants into a great nation, a people that would be God's own possession, his own people. The promise that God makes to Abraham is first told in Genesis chapter 12, and then it's re-given to Abraham multiple times throughout his life. Let's look at the promise to Abraham at the beginning of Genesis chapter 12. The Lord said to Abram, go from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Abraham is given this promise from God. And it's really a three-part promise. God will make his descendants into a great nation. God will give them a land to live in. And God will bless all nations through those descendants. Part of the promise that we see later on that's given to both Abraham and his wife, Sarah, is the promise that Abraham's descendants would contain this kingly line, that it would contain many kings and leaders of nations. And we see that fulfilled throughout this list and throughout King David and his descendants. Similarly to the promise to Abraham, God made promises to King David as well. You're probably also familiar with King David's story. The Israelite people demanded from God that he give them a king instead of the leadership that he had given them through a series of judges. And so God gave them a king. He gave them this man named Saul who eventually kind of descended into madness and grief and was taken away as the king. And King David was raised up. David was called a man after God's own heart. And although he has some grave sins that are recorded, he follows God and he uh, creates into, you know, this nation into a great nation and raises up uh, this kingly line of his descendants. In uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see the promises of God that are given to David. We'll start halfway through verse 11. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. The first portion of this promise relates to King David's son, Solomon who is a fantastic and wonderful king. He's given all the wisdom and wealth in the world, and he, his kingdom is established through God's promises. His descendants continue to rule as kings over Israel and Judah and do, in fact, need the discipline of God. But the last portion of this promise is that God's faithful love will always follow David's house. God uses this key word forever. He makes promises that David's kingship and house will endure forever. Just like he promised to Abraham, God makes promises to David that his descendants would continue this kingly line that would be, that would be established through him. And he uses that word forever, which is an impressive promise. Forever is a long time and is in no way a promise that could be kept by humans or by circumstance. We also see much later on that God makes promises to his people during their exile. So generations after King David, the Jewish people continued to fall deeper and deeper into depravity and sin, lusting after the sinful ways of the nations around them and the sinful gods that these nations follow. And despite warning after warning from God that he would keep the curse portion of his covenant with their forefathers, which was their exile, they continued to ignore him. God does, in fact, keep his promise, and the Israelite kingdom is split and eventually exiled into Babylon. The final king of the southern portion of Israel, called Judah, was named Jeconiah. We see him in this genealogy, and he was taken into exile along with his people. But despite the people's lack of faithfulness, God remains faithful to them. He keeps his promises, and he remains with them. He sends them a prophet, Ezekiel, who prophesied this to God's people in exile. Uh, this is from Ezekiel chapter 34, starting in verse 22. God says, I will save my flock. They will no longer be prey, and I will judge between one sheep and another. I will establish over them one shepherd, my servant, David, and he will shepherd them. He will tend them himself and will be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. God promises to give his people a shepherd, a king who will guide them, care for them, and restore them to himself. He uses the name David here, not to say that he is physically going to send them David again, but to show them that he is keeping his promise, that a descendant of David will be the king that this kingly line will continue. Now, you might be looking at a genealogy like this and thinking, wow, you did a lot of work to pull all that out of there. But this is exactly what Matthew is trying to communicate because he says so. Multiple times in this, he calls Jesus the Christ or the Messiah, the Savior, 
the Jews who would be reading this genealogy would know exactly what Matthew was trying to say. They're, they knew the prophecies of the Messiah well. They had been waiting for hundreds of years for God to send this prophesied Messiah. The entire post-exile period has been characterized by the people of God trying to restore a relationship with God. They've been trying to restore themselves into holiness. They rebuilt their place of worship. They were trying to reestablish the Mosaic law, to reclaim their land, and to have the promises of God once again. They've been trying to fulfill their portion of the covenant with God in the hopes that God would once again fulfill his portion of the covenant. They were hoping to be found worthy of his grace and favor once again. But the people of God were in desperate trouble. Israel had been conquered again and again. They were currently under the, th the thumb of Roman oppression. And Rome was slowly starving them. They needed a savior. They needed a Messiah. And in this gospel, Matthew starts it off by making sure that any Jew reading his gospel would understand that he is saying Jesus is that Messiah. Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise made from Abraham to David to the exile. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, it says, For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. His dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. That's who Jesus is. That's who Matthew is saying Jesus is. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace, God himself come down to become a human, born to the Virgin Mary, adopted son of Joseph, Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. He says that Jesus will reign forever and be the ultimate blessing to every nation, just as was promised through Abraham. That every nation would be called together under his banner to join in with his people and be his kingdom forever. That's who Matthew is saying Jesus is through giving this genealogy. And this is the Jesus we get to serve. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of God to Abraham, to David, to the exiled Jews, and to many more. What a great truth to start our Advent season with. And that's just my first point. Now on to the second one. No. <laughs> I can't top that truth. That truth is amazing, and it's so good. And I think we need to just sit for a moment in that. Jesus is the fulfillment of promise. There is a second point that I think we can pull out of this. And it's really just a continuation of the truth that we see there. I think we see through this genealogy that this is a record of the intentional working of God to provide redemption and hope to his people generation after generation through story after story. We see the truth that God was working from the beginning 
to lead his people, to guide them, to call sinners to redemption all the way through. You might remember last year in our Advent season, we focused on the five women that are specifically called out in Jesus' genealogy. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. Each of these women are a beautiful testament to God's power and to the hope that comes through putting your faith in Jesus. Tamar's belief and hope in the promises of God to provide her a child survived the terrible sin of three different men to finally result in a son and the continuation of Jesus' genealogy. Rahab's hope in salvation and faith in the promises of a foreign people's God resulted in her own salvation and the continuation of Jesus' genealogy. We just saw Ruth's hope in the redemption of God to allow her into his covenant despite all odds resulted in her marriage to Boaz and the continuation of Jesus' genealogy. Bathsheba's hope that God could still find worth in her despite the terrible way she was mistreated by the king resulted in her son becoming the king of Israel and the continuation of Jesus' genealogy. And Mary. Mary was left with little other than the hope that was promised to her by an angel when she was found to be pregnant outside of marriage. But that hope blossomed into the redemption of the entire world through her son, Jesus. We see example after example in this genealogy of times where God intentionally used those with little else but hope and faith in him to continue the redemptive story of scripture. We serve a God who responds to hope. Each of these stories is one where these women did not just have every circumstance stacked up against them, but they also had the weight of sin stacked up against them. They should not have been redeemed. Their stories should have ended much differently. But they did not because we serve a God who does not come down looking for perfection, who does not come down looking for righteous, sinless people, but a God who has been working his intentional plan from the beginning, who calls sinners into his redemption. And we see that through Jesus' beautiful story. Jesus did not enter into our world with a perfect family. He entered into our world to become a human just like us and joined this family line full of sinners and criminals, prostitutes, rapists, murderers, outcasts. Last weekend, Pastor Craig shared a quote with me. He wasn't sure where he got it, so I've decided that it was him. <laughs> he said this, a genealogy is not just a list of names to skim and skip through. Genealogies are paragraphs of paradoxes that point to a God of the impossible. A God who had it in his mind for our Messiah to come from a bloodline of kingdoms and crowns as well as criminals and castaways. It's beautiful. Craig is very well spoken. <laughs> But really, this is the truth that I think we need to get from this genealogy. God used criminals and castaways to prove his grace and redemptive love throughout history. What a wonderful God we serve. 
He chose to enter into our story as one of us. His family is just as screwed up as any of us. He chose to enter into our story as a human, a baby, an outcast born into a stable, the child of a woman pregnant outside of marriage. He wasn't born in a palace. He didn't come as a conquering hero. He came as one of us. He came to experience everything that we experience. And he came to show his great and mighty love through humility, through patience, and through hope. I think we can learn a lot from the people in Jesus' genealogy about hope. Each of those women kept their hope in God despite terrible circumstances. Hope is an amazing thing. I think we all have a lot of hopes and dreams. Hope is one of those things that can often seem very similar to wishes. The definition of hope is an expectation and desire for something specific to happen. The problem with a wish or a hope is that we don't have any guarantee of it actually happening. Over the course of history, people have put their hope in a lot of different things, and most of them have died with those hopes unfulfilled. But the beauty of hope in Jesus is that our hope is guaranteed. We see that throughout this genealogy. The entire history of God's redemptive plan proves that hope in him is always fulfilled. He always fulfills his promises. These women in Jesus' genealogy put their hope in Jesus and his redemption to save them, and he delivered. Matthew wants us to see that. And this is really where I think the rubber meets the road for us this morning, because each of us also has hopes and dreams. Each of us has hard circumstances and things that we are having to live through. So as we end things today, I want to challenge each of you to consider what your hope is in. We've been talking that Advent means arrival or coming. We celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ, the hope of the world, and also eagerly look forward to him coming once again. Are you actually looking forward to him coming again? That's a loaded question. And it's a hard question if we really ask ourselves that question. Is our hope actually in Jesus to make all things right when he returns? Or are we hoping for a change in our circumstance? Are we hoping for a change in something that will make our lives easier? When God makes promises, he fulfills them. Chris, you guys can go ahead and come on up. Jesus came once already to fulfill his promise. And he will come again to complete the work that he began. I want to read this. It's from John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. And Jesus says, Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. 
you know the way to where I am going. Lord, Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Church, is your hope and belief in Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life? He is the only way, truth, and life. He is the only way to salvation. He has gone to prepare a place for those who are his, and he will come back and take us to that place. This is the promise that Jesus made thousands of years ago. So let's take just a minute. Let's pray. Let's examine what we're placing our hope in. Is it in Jesus or is it in the world? Is it in our circumstances? Is it in ourselves? Is it in something else? So take a minute, just pray and ask God to tell you what your hope is in.